It's a new millennium, and the kids are not all right. This is about a generation of overachievers where everyone was put in a special program. They all grew up too fast with the internet, saw a prosperous world undone by 9-11 and economic collapse, and had their futures sealed shut with climate catastrophes. I am, of course, talking about our generation. Over the last 20 years, we have had a few cinematic stories of note dig into teens and former teens who attempt to solve crimes only to find themselves in over their heads. The weekly procedural of Veronica Mars, the slapstick antics of Mystery Team, and of course this week's topics, the pint-sized P.I.s of Brick and the Kid Detective. These two movies form a complementary whole of the teen investigator. Brick, set in a high school with a cast of teen characters, transplants the tradition of hard-boiled fiction to the teen drama world of the O.C. and similar shows. Meanwhile, the Kid Detective takes the opposite tack. Its titular, Kid Detective, now grown but not grown up, an encyclopedia brown type who stumbles into a noir world. Together they paint a vivid picture of what happens when kids play with adult things and are forced to grow up too quickly. The effects both immediate and long-lasting in its tragedy. An apt metaphor for a generation raised in the limitless possibilities of the 90s, only to have each bit of security snatched away, one by one. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend... Fred Pelzer. And tonight, we're delving into the psyche of teen detectives. With our second film, we'll be seeing how he does or does not grow up. But first, we're dipping our toe into the seedy underbelly of high school with Rick, where the most important question is always, where do you eat lunch? Brendan? Mm -hmm. I really screwed up. Screwed up half. The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good. No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope rubber, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just want to know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm going to start shaking things up. All right. Ryan Johnson's 2005 neo-noir indie sensation Brick stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as high school loner Brendan, along with Nora Zahetner, Noah Fleiss, Matt O'Leary, and frequent Johnson collaborator Noah Segan. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> both just saw him in Class Onion. Which was a fun surprise when it was like, oh, they did bring him back <laughs> a completely different character. <laughs> yep. And if you don't Loved it. if you don't know who he is, you probably don't realize that he's back from the first one. Uh the plot, uh Brendan Fry's ex-girlfriend gets in touch out of the blue, wanting his help, then blowing him off. When she turns up dead shortly after, Brendan sets off on a journey into the criminal underworld of his sunny California high school, unraveling a sordid tale of tainted blow, pregnant teens, and gang warfare. All right, personal experience, Tristan. What are you? What are you bringing to the table here? Big fan, uh, obviously, big fan of Ryan Johnson. I, uh, I, I just, I love, I love his enthusiasm. I love his. I just, you can tell he loves movies and he loves mm -hmm. storytelling mm -hmm. and he loves his actors and it, it all really translates. Uh, and Brick was the first film of his I saw, probably not in theaters, but shortly after it came out, uh, and. Um, and actually, uh, uh, back in in college and film school, of course, this, this felt um, like a, a big deal to me. It resonated a lot. Um, I had another friend who I think has started listening to our podcast already, um, who actually put on a, a play version, a dramatized play version of this in college that wow. I, I recall going to see, uh, which I might have seen around the same time I first saw the movie, actually. Hmm. Uh, so it's all kind of tied together. Anyway, I had not revisited this, even though I'm a I'm I'm an avowed fan of Johnson's. I uh, who only is three letters different from from my name, so I have to be. That's true. Uh, but I hadn't seen this since back in the late 2000s. 
And am I remembering correctly that Brothers Bloom is your favorite Johnson? Brothers Bloom is my favorite Johnson film. Which it is, is very a much a year movie. movie. I mean, I, I love Brothers Bloom, but it is very much a year movie. I'm a, I'm a caper kind of guy. You are. Um, yeah, I I also first watched this in college. I mean, that's roughly around when it came out. I, I also watched it on DVD from probably got from the library. Um, the but no, this was just I think well, I probably watched it actually when Brothers Bloom came out. Um, I can't remember if I watched it because of that or, or what, but this was the first of his that I'd seen and just fell in love with it. The the influences he brought together, but then the sort of postmodern spin he gives it by putting it in the high school. I I just it knocked me out. And uh this is actually the first screenplay I ever read. I seem to remember getting it from the internet and being like, oh wow, this is this is what it looks like on the inside. So no, it was a huge, huge formative experience for me getting to watch this movie. Uh and it's great to get to return to it again. We'll dig into this, but just this it feels it feels really unique compared to a lot of the other uh, other noir neo noir type films that we've seen because this one is um, it, it's both clearly transplanting the the genre somewhere else into into high school, but it takes that premise so damn seriously, and that's why it to me that's why it's really wonderful. This isn't um, this isn't a high school flick that also happens to be a neo-noir this is this is a noir that happens to be set in a high school i know i think you hit it on the head the yeah it's it is very clever about how it translates these elements but it never winks about that cleverness it's just like okay we figured out the one-to-one and then we're just gonna do it and we're gonna do it straight and it works it works supremely well i think also because it doesn't get into pastiche right like it doesn't get into sort of an arch noir style where everything is in shadows and Dutch angles. And, you know, like, it's not trying to be like, but and it's the forties and he's wearing a trench coat and all that. It's just like, we're going to take the, the actual story beats, but stylistically we're going to do something very different. And, and, um, and we'll also get into sort of, it, it ties back to one of the other movies that we both actually watched for the first time for this podcast and really enjoyed um but bef- and we've we've discussed this connection on that episode with a little teaser to get you there but first some just some context um to help the conversation so yeah so johnson wrote the script uh after he finished film school he spent uh, a few years trying to get the movie made but couldn't get the any studio to sign off on it and so his uh, the man who produced this movie and eventually became his longtime producing per- partner ram bergman um who he's worked with on every movie since finally said well you know what you you don't have to make this for $5 million. You can make this for 500,000. Just get the money together that you can get and then make it. And so that's what he did. He went out and, and raised money from his family and his friends um, and self-funded $450,000 to make this movie. And it went on to win the special jury prize at Sundance. Uh, and he said that uh, classic screwball comedies, Chinatown and Cowboy Bebop were important influences and that he specifically told his cast not to watch old noir movies because he didn't want them to be doing Bogart and Bacall and all that. He wanted them to be bringing a different energy, which I I think, uh, just to pay off that little teaser, you know, I think, as we talked about before, there is a very strong through line from like Yokohama BJ Blues to Cowboy Bebop to this in terms of how it takes the noir story, but it gives it a new stylistic energy that's very modern. Yeah, I I think that is absolutely nail on the head. I think it's why um of among among our more uh our more modern noirs, I guess modern uh, in the context of post Chinatown, um that why why this and and Yokohama BJ Blues fare so well for me um is just how they they take the premise so seriously and mm-hmm. it's uh and, and they create something new in the process and I, I don't know. Uh, it, there's uh, John, Johnson clearly had a a really strong conception of of what he wanted to go after going into this, and I do think he was he's he's showing what he can do on a budget like this is it's it's written tightly. It's um, it, it's uh, the fact that this got made for under half a million for 
<laughs> not a whole lot more than my house cost. Right. Um, end of the time when crazy. You, know, you would have been paying for film, and so it would have been very expensive. No, it's 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 very impressive, and I think it gets at something that we've kind of danced around a little bit, especially in the second half of the private private eye season, which is that classic noir up until sort of the last third, you the filmmakers weren't doing noir because noir wasn't a concept right they were just making interesting modern stylistic expressionistic choices with the storytelling that they were doing they got at the the inner uh psyche of the characters and i think what we've seen in the most like successful of the neo-noir and post-noir movies that we've watched are the ones that likewise are are taking the storytelling but again, are engaging in a fresh and modern, but still expressionistic approach to the interiority of these characters. And I think even these two films, I don't have it on the script here, but I think in these two films, when we get to the end and compare them, it's that's going to be a big distinction between the two is one is making those expressionistic choices and one is being just like a really solid crime thriller. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and then... To, I guess, tied to those expressionistic choices, uh, or tied to the um, tied to the aesthetic choices within here, I'm um, I'm impressed how this is kind of like proof of concept that you can have thrills and you can find excitement, and it doesn't need to be. It's not tied to budget necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's t- uh, you've got the 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 scene where where he's getting chased across the campus and uh, and just on foot um, he. Uh, he he uh, ushers in that like kind of daring slide and trip to to uh, to put an end to everything. But the whole thing is like fraught with excitement. The car, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the car chase down where he's just standing still. Like all all of these conjure some genuine uh, chills in in you. And this is all done on on virtually no budget at all. It's very clever camera work. Again, Steve Yedlin, who's another collaborator of Johnson's that has has worked with him since, uh, is a really sharp cinematographer um yeah the that mall parking lot fight that that is something that is that is the there's that shot when he first punches brendan and then he keeps punching him as brendan keeps trying to like get up and it's just i don't i don't know if they like undercranked it or overcranked it or what but there's just something really fascinating i think part of that they shot backwards so that it would play forward um and there's just some really fascinating like camera stuff that's happening there that is again really getting across the like heightened world that we're living in the heightened violence that's happening but also making it impactful right and i mean to me that conjures it, a lot of the the similar thrills that the, the you know classic low budget noirs are are doing just uh you know it's it, it's done through johnson's own lens um he's he's clearly got his mark all over this even even with it being his debut but but you know it reminds me of uh so much of those like the the cheap thrills uh, right. like that, detour right like detour yeah, is so exactly. much a product of innovation of, of of innovation from desperation right that it that it is it was made for like what 100 150 thousand dollars something like that a shot in a weekend or something but it is one of the great noirs because they took that limitation and they said, all right, what can we do with the resources that we've got to make this really pop and be interesting? And I think Johnson does the same thing here. He just, instead of going to the familiar playbook from 50 years earlier, he sets out to do something new and interesting, and and it really works. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, something else I wanted to uh, just, in the, on the direction and aesthetic side, that this time kind of all came together for me was the, like, I have to assume those were trash bags just getting dragged around Brendan, around Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but th- that way that that's sort of used in these dream-slash-nightmare sequences this time around uh, kind of, made, for me, felt like a, a new spin on the uh, what we saw in Murder, My Sweet with the the drugged sequences. Oh, totally. Yeah, I see. Yes, that that does seem to, to map really, really well. I, don't, I mean, it's all about ingenuity right it's mm-hmm. about uh, uh it, I, I mean i kind of like uh, i i live for those kind of inventive moments that that you just you feel the the creative wheels of the the director and his team spinning or uh, as 
as it goes, it creates something, you know, kind of otherworldly, uh, but also like you're, it's not necessarily pulling you in or out of the moment. It's just, it, it, uh, it stands apart from everything else. And it reminds you that you're watching, uh, you're watching something small and just bursting with creative energy. Yeah. I mean, kind of going down the same road. I, I think the, way that it films violence is really interesting and again sort of speaks to that innovation through limitation because i feel like a lot uh i mean a just a lot of this movie is brendan getting the shit beat out of him and until they finally somebody gives in occasionally he beats up somebody else but frequently it is just him getting hit again and again and again a until, lot. until somebody concedes but a lot of those hits are like point of view from the victim and so the, uh, the the attacker is punching into camera, um, and there's a lot of like quick cuts, and it, it's just sort of it's not a, it's not a like, traditionally staged fight scene. It instead is, or the chase sequence that you've mentioned earlier, like it is all about really focusing the pieces. Um, like I, the fight scene, I, one of the things I noticed this time is when he cuts Brendan's jacket. There's like a one second shot of just the sleeve of his jacket with the stuffing coming out and it i mean it looks like it it looks like a, a beat from uh one of wes anderson's animated films like it's it's just so close and focused but it, it, he johnson does some really interesting stuff with how he's keeping your attention engaged even as he's not able to like stage a classic fight scene yeah uh agreed and he doesn't, he doesn't have a hard time holding attention there also on the on the um on the topic of joseph gordon levitt continuing to get beat up i appreciated what i assume is at least a somewhat aware through line to chinatown with the the nose bandage mm-hmm. um that you know I, I feel like you can't pull that in a noir without thinking of jack nicholson totally i mean let's get into the you know the the sort of those tropes and those archetypes and those callbacks that are that are pervasive throughout right so just some of the archetypes that i kind of picked out and how they're being translated from hard-boiled fiction to um to film you know you've got the pi as the high school loner who's eats lunch by himself uh, the lounge singer is now the theater nerd uh which is really fun the femme fatale is, like, is the quirky artsy girl which is something i picked up this time around with what they're doing with her with her costumes because it's so it's so pointed how hers is like French intellectual esque, but in that sort of, you know, small town high schooler way, where, where you're really trying to establish that that personality for yourself. Um, the organized crime is the older kids who've left. They're like, yeah, hey, he's really old. He's 27. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, and then of course the like the cops and the the system as as the vice principal, which makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, so so smart. And it goes a long way to, uh, you know, having all of these characters be such heightened archetypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fairly easy to keep track of of who's who, of what's going on. You're you're he, Johnson's very smart about who he's foregrounding and um, and and where he's slotting them in, and uh, and, and it can be, uh, you know, if you if this were if this were something that were being played as a straight or as a played more as a high school film that happened to have noir trappings, it takes a longer time to, I think, root yourselves in each of these characters mm-hmm. and what they map onto. But here it's, it's immediate. You, you can tell without them even opening their mouths. Well, I think it's also that it, he keeps a lot of it to, it keeps them to their locations, right? So like the vice principals in the vice principal's office and the theater nerd is on stage backstage in the theater space and, and so on and so forth. And, and that helps, I think, to further just give a real quick hand in the, through the mise-en-scene of, of who these people are. Yeah, we've traded, um, well, we, we've traded the sprawl of, of L.A. for the sprawl of a high school campus. Right, and and especially California places. high school campus where you've got all mm-hmm. that outdoor space and buildings separated that you have to go between. And, you know, this wouldn't work in like the high school I grew up in, which was all contained, all in one building. And this, this might be sense. the only high school, the only high school film ever to to feel um, empty. It's not like there's extras yes. crowded in at all times. You can feel the stillness of it, and that um, th- that is convenient because it both is presumably from a budgetary standpoint, but also it works really well um, at just creating that distance and those dis- those distinct locales that that he gets to uh, recurringly visit. 
Yeah, and the other thing I think the location brings is that, it, again, it forces uh, a new fresh style because it is largely shot during the day and outside, and there's just a lot of sun. So you can't, you, you, you can't do the shadows and the night that you traditionally get with the noir. And again, I think that's what it makes it, that makes it feel aesthetically so fresh and exciting is, is a, a daytime noir, a, um, uh, I can't, a soul, a soul, a soul with the French or no black, black noir. That's no, but film, film black. That's what it is. There's a, there's like a proposed counter to film noir. That's film blanc that is set during the daytime, but still about, crime under the sun um and this i think would fit in very nicely within that category oh yeah um yeah that's an interesting i i file um purple noon under, under yeah. that category for sure I, I i'm sure plenty others i could think of so you've talked about joseph gordon levin a lot uh any other performances that you want to highlight or, or stand out for you um i mean i think lucas haas is is pretty um fun in the the crime boss Mm-hmm. Uh, mold uh, and the and, and the reveal of him in his mom's basement is is a classic Ryan Johnson right uh, oh, reveal. Just, just, yeah upsetting so, expectations and yep. and I think it's like the one time that it really knowingly plays the but these are kids joke yeah like the rest of the movie like you said just plays it so straight and this is the one time you're like but remember they're kids like he's in his mom's basement and then you probably forget that again because a bunch of people die right uh what about you anyone anyone you want to call uh, out yeah i mean it definitely feels like you know a low budget indie out i think outside outside of those two i think no segan's great like you understand why johnson keeps bringing him back for other like kind of showy supporting roles um but but no, I mean like it. But it functions, right? Like everybody's kind of doing doing their thing. Uh, I'm 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 just happy that this movie exists. I'm happy it tee off Johnson's career, and he this is one hell of a calling card. I'm, mm-hmm. If you ask me to make a list of the great debut features, this has got a place on that for for sure. Um, it's it's impressive what he did, uh, and and honestly, it's it's not like it. It's not like I don't know if it's good or not. It's not like it's got a bunch of imitators to it because no. I don't. I don't think a lot of people are interested in just making that kind of straight genre uh, fair set, you know, in a slightly different universe like this. It, usually, other genres trump noir when it comes to mashups, right? Right. Like, it takes a to something. I think it's just hard to right. Like it's. If you think about like sci-fi, right? Like A sci-fi is a is a much broader genre. B, it's like you can do a high school sci-fi movie, and then it's just going to be a sci-fi movie that's set at a high school, right? But there's it, there's not like an exciting there's nothing exciting about that because it's it is a genre that is open to all. Whereas right. no part of noir, I think, is that is generally set to a very specific group of type of people, type of place. And so there's a lot more interesting friction to get that you get out of transposing that to a new setting as opposed to most other genres. Yeah. Alphaville is a noir sci-fi that is more noir than sci-fi, but it's also more a Godard than it is a noir. So I, I mean, I, I even, even something like that, I can't think of too many things that, that go the mashup route and let noir be the, the star genre. Right. Um, and and you know, good on Johnson for that because uh, because all these years later, and it still really really stands out as uh, like there was no way we were doing this season without Brick being one hundred percent pivotal film in it. Uh, and then one last, I also want to shout out great great score the, provided by his cousin Nathan Johnson, who's done the scores for all of his movies except for uh, Star Wars Episode Eight. And his work is I've always enjoyed. That's one of the his his uh, score for Brothers Bloom is one of the first scores where I was like, I really enjoy this music. I should listen to this. Um, th- um, that too. Um, I'm glad you called that out because because that's another thing that leaving behind, um, leaving behind the genre mashup trappings. You know, what does every single high school film have but a, a parade of needle drops? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to ditch or on that. The noir side, like you expect something kind of jazzy or sinister strings or whatever. And this is just goes in a third direction entirely. 
Yeah, much appreciated. Um, I think I think you're right. The score really does help elevate it overall. Uh, I mean, personally, I could keep talking. Like we even touch on the dialogue and how much fun he's having. Just coming up with uh, as you know, I think um, like I said, I... the like his girl Friday and and bringing up baby and and those types of screwball comedies are are in here too in terms of the speed and the wit of the dialogue. But it's still given that sort of like clueless spin where you're like, this feels new and specific, but it's also not tied to something real. So it doesn't feel dated either. Like you can still watch it now and it just sort of exists in its own heightened world rather than being like, yeah, that's 2005. That is how they talked then. Yeah. Um, and and Johnson's smart for that, I think. I mean, that's clearly one trademark of it, that his his patter uh, mm -hmm. just carries through his his films and you can. I don't know. You you can tell it's his voice. You can tell mm -hmm. you can tell him as a writer, and I do really appreciate that it does. Um, you know, all the way through, uh, through, uh, Knives Out, and and maybe a little less to Glass Onion, but like they they feel they they do feel a little unstuck in time that mm -hmm. they can they could exist in their own bubble. Yeah, uh, he's uh, he's one to watch. He's going places. Yeah. See, maybe maybe they'll let have him have more Star Wars eventually. <laughs> One can dream. Uh, all right. Well, it's time to graduate from high school and instead go to a kind of a class reunion and see see where the kid detective winds up as we watch the kid detective. I used to be loved. I used to be a kid detective. We're all really counting on you. I was so far ahead of the game. But one day I just woke up behind. This guy in my homeroom claims he's practiced with the Mets. I need to find out if he's lying. He's lying. So what can I help you with? Somebody murdered my boyfriend. Seriously? Pretty seriously. He was stabbed 17 times. Is it possible he was involved in drugs? No, he would never do drugs. Gambling? No, he would never gamble. Demon worship? No, he would never worship a demon. All right. Developed over the course of years by writer-director Evan Morgan, The Kid Detective stars Adam Brody as the now-grown kid detective, along with Sophie Nelise, Zima, Wendy Crewson, and Sarah Sutherland. Uh, the plot concerns the wonderfully named Abe Applebaum, who was once an Encyclopedia Brown-esque child sleuth who never got over the unsolved disappearance of a classmate. Now as a 30-something, Abe has a chance to restore his reputation by investigating the death of a high school honor student after getting hired by the teen's girlfriend. But he soon finds himself again in over his head, and again chasing that disappearance from 20 years earlier. All right, so personal experience. Tristan, have you, you had not seen this before, right? I had not seen this before. Absolutely none. Honestly, I did not. Uh, I, this is 2020. Um, mm -hmm. 2020 from a movie standpoint, it was kind of a black hole for me. Um, and I feel like I'm still playing catch up on it. So sure. this was not on my radar. Yeah, I watched this like at the end of 2020, if that's when it came out. Um, because it, I almost wonder if it's, I think it might have actually been a 2021. What's, what are the, I put it in here. I wonder if like 2020 was the, I don't know. Whatever yeah. year it came out, the actual gets, theatrical release, it, right. it got some, it, it got talked up a bit in amongst some writers that I know. And so I was excited to, to give it, and it was getting just like a lot of like, this is very under the radar, but people who watch it and are on its wavelength, they're going to love it. And um, I was on its wavelength and I, I really enjoyed it too. And, and uh, it was an obvious pairing to me to, to bring back with, um, with brick. Yeah. I think this is, this is smart and, you know, kind of pulls us, a little further ahead in time, but it's doing it, it's doing some things very differently than Brick. It just uh, it just makes sense, I think, thematically to pull them together. Uh, yeah, I mean, just on I, that, like looking ahead to the rest of the end of the season and the 21st century noir films that we're looking at, you know, it, it's interesting that it's after the 90s, there really was sort of a slowdown. And so the pickings are a little bit thinner. And I think we kind of ended up prioritizing connective tissue and and thematic through line over chronological tightness, right? So like we're pairing a 2005 and a 2020, 2020 movie here, 
and next week we'll be hearing a 2006 and a 2017 movie or something like that and then after that we're hearing a 2007 and a 2000 so we're kind of opening things up a little bit but we we feel like it just sort of makes more sense to kind of keep these in conversation with each other when our next episode we'll we'll be kind of we'll be looking at a director pairing mm-hmm. um for for the first time uh, but but here it's just too it's too good to see uh, the, these this kid detective kind of look and now looking at the adult version and here's what I really like about about Abe uh, or two things that I really mm-hmm. like about Abe Applebaum as our as our protagonist here one um, as far as the detective goes um, he is he is so different from what we've already seen he's honestly and the name even kind of conjures this this. Uh, up, but he's more like a lost Tenenbaum child. Sure. Um, he he is um, he's adrift. He is in this arrested state of development, um, and and I really love that um, that this is the the probably truest moment that we've seen with our detective in the season so far, where there's just no glamour about him. Mm. There's he. This is an unvarnished, not. This is, there's no cool factor right. to Abe Applebaum. He's small town. He is washed up. He never achieved his potential, uh, and he, like he, there isn't a girl to get. Never mind not getting her. And the best he can do is try to like win back some self esteem. And and he's chasing something that wasn't cool to begin with because child prodigies mm-hmm. aren't cool. Right. Um, they they there are many things, but but no one thinks of them the the same way we think of Humphrey Bogart. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just not that factor to them. So even the the glory days that that Abe is chasing are are so different than what we've seen from our, our detectives so far. I think that's kind of hilarious. But no, it's true. Uh, it's it's yeah, a different starting point. Yeah, he and I, and I hadn't thought of it about it, but the more I think after you brought it up, the, it's really resonating with me the the connection to the the royal Tenenbaums and that you know the trio of of gifted children and how that's kind of ruined them for adulthood, and and I think that's the same thing here. The um, so uh, Morgan had initially pitched uh, Brody on this movie, but he pitched him just the first act because that's all he had written, and and Brody was like. Uh, this is interesting i'm kind of into it but what happens next and so morgan kind of just wrote it in chunks and would keep checking in with with brody as he went along so it's i think that you can feel that in the structure of the movie because it feels calibrated the comedy to darkness is calibrated at a different balance at the start than at the end like it gets pretty dark (laughs) it gets very very dark and Uh... You know, it like it works well and it flows from one to the other, but it definitely starts at a much more in that Royal Tenenbaums. And by the end, it is not Royal Tenenbaums. No, no, not in in fairness, Royal Tenenbaums gets more more serious as it goes along, but it still retains a little this. This just goes. I mean, like even right to like the when he he kills the human darkness. Right. When he like because even in Tenenbaums, when they get when they get like dark into the dark night of the soul and he, and he tries to kill himself. Like it's still with a poppy soundtrack and it's shot really interestingly and aesthetically pleasing and all that. And this is just like, it starts off kind of funny. And by the end, it's, it's really not that funny. Both movies feature a stabbing, but this one, um, mm. th- this one goes a self, a self stabbing. Yes. It goes much farther. Yeah. Cause I think also, and I think maybe this is something that works in its favor looking back at movies that are based off of Chandler where he was sort of stuffing two, two stories together. You know, this starts off with one case and then the the high school teenager that got killed feeds into the older case. And so, you know, again, it's the classic two case thing uh, and it's just that handoff where you're like, you you think it's about one thing, and then it turns out to be be about the other. Yeah, uh, yeah, smart smart use of that, and uh, and and very very conscious about it, and very much um, going through going through those those machinations while still keeping this uh, this such a character study of Abe and his um, and his own, you know. Uh, path 
toward redemption. Yeah. Uh, and no, I think that's that is the to me the really interesting thing about this. Having watched, you know, because I, I, I actually just point the question to you: like, do you think that this is neo noir? Like, would you put this? Um, I think that I think so. Even though, um, although it's a little it's a little bit harder because you know we're comparing it to Brick and and we, we're coming out of something where it is a where Brendan is a kid detective, mm-hmm. right? But Brendan's not a kid detective like like Encyclopedia Brown or like totally. like Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. He's he's um, very much more in the the classic noir protagonist mold, whereas. Whereas here we have something that it, uh, a- Abe is is of that true teen detective right. mold, um, only rendered now as an adult. But his story plays out with with fairly noir beats to it, so I, I'd still put it in that camp. Yeah, I mean that's definitely my my read on on how it works and how it brings in that that noir vibe is that yeah, as I think I said at the start that he is he is a classic kid detective who has entered into a noir world. Um, in a, in a in a small town like the the small town shoot of noir rather than the big city shoot um, well, con- contrast it from the the sunniness that we get as as mm-hmm. in, in the opening scenes where you know he's he's very much living that that childhood fantasy of being right. a teen sleuth and then once he's grown up I mean, it's also very like blue velvet right that it is the uh yeah. you know he comes back home from college and he discovers the truth of his his little sunny suburb and and the ears that are littering the lawns um but i think the other thing that kind of gives the noir some texture or kind of sublimates the noir maybe is that as you mentioned that it is it feels way more like a character study than any other noir that we've watched right like there's an actual dark night of the soul for the character where he's like hits rock bottom that we don't really get in other noirs because noir you know is especially the private eye is about the mystery and here it's about the mystery but it's really about him as a character like rediscovering his mojo right like that's that's kind of what the arc of the story is yeah um i think uh, a couple episodes ago when we were talking about um two jakes i i bemoaned a bit the focus on the internal um that that the the film was giving to to jake giddis um because it didn't and i was like i do i do i want that much um Mm -hmm. out of my detective and i think it i i I think it just depends on how it's handled because i i think that by by really foregrounding it here with abe it did work for me and it made i mean that was what two jakes was a bit more uh chaotic and and unfocused as a feature whereas this knows what it's going after and it knows that the core of it is is Abe's journey. But I think also, like Night Moves, I think is the other detective noir that we've that we've watched that is really interested in its character and his like internal life. But even that is still like sixty forty mystery to character study, and this feels slightly flipped to me. This feels like sixty forty character study to noir mystery. Yeah, I mean, we do get a final shot here with with him just breaking down in tears in front of his parents. Let's talk uh, about the final shot. I think that was like yeah. the most. Uh, to I, me, that was I, when I first watched it with other people. That was the thing that we talked about the most. So, like, what was what was your like? What what's happening for him there? Do you think? Um, in some well, context, in case you haven't watched, you should watch. But he's you know he's finally solved this mystery. He's gotten nat- national attention. He's he's solved both mysteries. People finally like look up to him again. And he's he's gotten everything, but also in the process, he has discovered that this principle that that a he ruined a kid's life for no reason. B when he was a, when he himself was a kid. B that uh, relatedly that his like special prowess probably actually maybe isn't all that he thought it was. And C he like got involved in this terrible kidnapping, rape, child abandonment like just some real rotten stuff in the heart of the su- the suburb and then his parents come over and his parents also finally validate him and be like you're you're great like we finally are, are proud of you and then he just breaks down and that's how the movie ends um well uh sure i i don't know that i, I i'll attempt to pick apart all of the finer meaning to it but honestly as you laid out 
all of that is an emotionally overwhelming scenario for anyone to be in. And I do kind of feel like there's something natural and, and poetic about, about Abe just there with his parents on his couch weeping. I mean, it feels um, very real and appropriate. It feels like how anyone would... would yeah, I guess I'm more curious, like, do you think it's more, like, relief that his parents are finally approving of him, or is it the damn breaking from, like, all of the trauma took, that he's I been through? I took it more of damn breaking than relief. Uh, uh, but what about you? I think so, too. I think the, like... Yeah, I think it's the internal juxtaposition of, like, getting everything he wanted at the cost of having become involved in this terrible situation just finally knocks him over um, and and splits him open. Yeah. Also, he breaks in. He breaks into a a a, a, a teen girl's bedroom and hides in her. Oh yeah, excuse me, a, pedof- a pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's also that that element to it, which gets. I mean, it gets he gets off from doing that uh, with surprising ease, considering that that is a rather horrible thing. Right. Well, I guess um, it helps that he's got a history, although you would think that would work against him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It is, this is definitely a movie that is playing more with, and as you pointed out, it is pulling from a slightly different tradition with the Encyclopedia Brown of it all, but it is playing with that a lot more than Johnson did with Brick, right? Like, Brick plays it super straight, and this, for, like, the first half of the, of the Kid Detective, it is much more about the, like, the funniness of a kid detective grown up. And again, I just want to plug Mystery Team, uh, Donald Glover's first movie, and uh, from the, which was written by his and directed by his old sketch sketch troupe, Derek Comedy. And uh, it, it is just a straight comedy about those kids growing up and being the most annoying teens you can imagine. <laughs> I have not seen it. It's it's worth a watch. It's it's pretty funny. I'm sure uh, it's think. also like one of Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza's first uh performances sounded even better um a lot of 30 rock cast like supporting cast members pop up because he was writing for the show around then um so it's it's fun nice yeah uh i ought to check that out um gosh uh i oh i had a i I, oh i was thinking of you know this is this is clearly taking the uh, this is taking the teen detective genre and it's blending it pretty seamlessly into noir. Um, we've at this point seen a couple of, of Sherlockian uh, 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 detective angles that that have skirted that line. Um, so so it is interesting and uh, to kind of reflect back and to see that the more modern we get, how how the mystery genre as an umbrella. Um, can pull in different elements from here and kind of weave them together in different ways. And I guess the whodunit still kind of is its own, its own thing. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, in, I'm excited to maybe find some, some overlap between that because I'm absolutely a major whodunit fan. And uh, clearly, with uh, with Ryan Johnson being such a favorite, but um, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by how, how other corners of the mystery genre increasingly seem to get folded in alongside noir because uh because you know as we get more distance from it there you know these are all influences that are that are playing on the minds of directors as they're creating uh and writers as they're creating these films yeah and it's i feel like this related to what you just said uh (laughs) that was rambling sorry (laughs) no no what it spurred for me is thinking about you know the the mystery of it right and so and thinking about the way that the PI traditionally uses the mystery, at least my thesis that I keep bringing up, is that usually what ends up happening is the detective gets brought into a mystery, and he goes and explores an underworld and encounters a series of more and more heightened situations and characters that are... Um, and and it's one of the things that I enjoy most about the this particular part of the genre but I feel like this movie again is is not like instead of encountering more and more interesting like weirder parts and weird subcultures within the and and it's something that Brick does too right like Brick moves more and more through the different like cliques of a high school and that is how 
it's string it, that is what it's stringing along is all the fun set pieces of and now we're gonna deal with the jocks and now we're gonna deal with the theaters this is like not interested in that it just uses the characters he's encountering as a way to reflect back himself and it's again it is so much more about the character and so the people he's encountering you know like when um zima is the dad is just like what the fuck are you doing like it's not an interesting like spin on the suburban dad it's just this is a guy whose son died and he's like why are you involving yourself in this who do you think you are yeah i think that's um no i think that's super astute everyone uh yeah everyone there all of these characters there's no there's no temptation to make them eccentric there's no mm -hmm. uh to or, or even just like a little heighten, bit right yeah no not like, at all they're they're you're right they're and they 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 could have gone that direction you see in that beginning mm -hmm. in that in that opening how like that's how he views the world at first Mm -hmm. uh going and getting his his free scoops of ice cream totally. uh, that like like that's that's how he's approaching that's his mentality until the bloom is off the rose right or even the like the very first part of the movie when he's investigating the drug angle and he's like it's at the ice cream shop or it's in the back room of the boiler room or whatever and like it, it kind of faints in that direction and then it pulls back and it really just becomes about like you know, uh, again, for unfulfilled p potential and arrested development and just being like, who who are you and why are you doing this? Which I think is why it's such a, uh, the, the climax and catharsis of, the, of it isn't just solving the mystery, but also who his character becomes. And we generally don't get that arc, right? Like usually the detective like pays for his sins or solves the mystery, but at cost, but there isn't really a feeling of like, this character, this is a character who's gone on a journey Whereas Abe, I think, is easily the, the detective who's changed the most over the course. And, like, the movie is more the most focused on his his change. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a refreshing take. I, I appreciate that it went that way, and it, it pulls it off. Uh, it's, it, it's certainly been a nice, uh, a nice counterbalance to the, the detectives that we've seen so far who have largely, uh, you know, they've gone on their own personal journey, but they, they're, they aren't fundamentally changed between the mm -hmm. start and the end the dude ends up right back at the bowling alley well There's... i mean the dude's sort of extreme in the other direction but, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. but true <laughs> uh all right so let's talk about these these two together right so just start you know okay we've got kid detective as kid versus the kid detective growing up past his prime like what what is what do you see as the the different results of that approach like what what how do these both kind of milk that in different ways I, um, I mean, I, I think that both of these are, are just such products of, of, of directors and writers who are clearly raised loving these stories, but wanting to like explore different angles of it, mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't see a whole lot um, of comparison points between Brendan and, and Abe as, mm -hmm. as characters uh, at all. But that's by, I mean, nor, nor, nor I think should I, I mean, these are, these are kid detectives cut from entirely different cloth and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and both, both lovingly cut from, from that cloth. I think that they're, they're done with a real intention to kind of dissect the, the genre in different ways. And, uh, and, and to me, it's ultimately more of a, a, a comment on, you know, how, how that direct, how the director or the writer wanted to, to approach that, um, the, that story and how they wanted to uh, examine what lens they wanted to examine noir through. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. It's 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 a fresh way into noir, but also as you said, it's a way to keep noir really foregrounded in a way that perhaps other genres don't allow. And that these are really paired with other genres, maybe a little bit like the teen drama with with Brick, but it's really just like a interesting new milieu to put. The noir in and gives it just a little extra like oh this is fresh and new and interesting again um and again i think as we talked about earlier i think brick doesn't just rest on the new setting and the new character archetypes getting mixed in it also brings that same appetite for reinvention to the style and the dialogue whereas i feel like uh Kid Detective, which I really enjoy, is is much more of a like 
aesthetically kind of just a sort of Sundance indie, right? Like, well shot, looks good, but it's not it's not really moving things forward aesthetically in the same way that that Brick is, where it's taking chances and doing really interesting stuff. Yeah, and if if there's anything that holds me up just a touch from Kid Detective, it is that it falls a bit into that. However, that pattern that that of traditional indie mold, and yeah, it I think it does it does break that with just how damn dark it goes. Sure. At, in, in the the end, I think it's it's willingness to to let itself become that bleak. Oh, I think like is, content is... and tonally, it totally goes there. But I think aesthetically. Like purely yeah. on a visual, oh, stylistic yeah. level, Absolutely. that is the space that it kind of stays in. And that sort of, to me, I think is the one thing that, that really separates how much these two are able to get out of recontextualizing the noir. Um, and I think something else, too, that's interesting, because neither one of these movies foregrounds this, but both of these movies are about millennials, right? Like, if you if you take the age of the character's and not the actors, because Adam Brody's in his, like, 40s, but he's playing a 34-year-old or whatever. And likewise, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is supposed to be 17, but he's, you know, in his 20s. Uh, if, you, if you take, at face value, the age of character at release, then both these movies are about millennials and, like, essentially our peers. And we only... We only get one more, um, one, one more film uh, in this, uh, uh, this season that's going to kind of hit on that but otherwise um otherwise yeah we're we're, um, we're we're talking about people in a, a very different generation yeah but i think that's really interesting i'm gonna and i don't think it's like intentional and again these movies don't directly bring this up or address it brick feels certainly to a certain degree out of time kid detective feels much more grounded in in the the one of it uh, because of the dialogue and, and the style and all that but I, again, I think it is sort of interesting that we're getting these now, and you know, Brick is after nine eleven, and obviously, again, he's written it before that. But just, I, I think it is tapping into something about our generation that is shaping who these characters are and how we relate to them, and and how they're each of them has a world that is undone, right? Like sort of a classic, noir, especially because. You know, instead of the actual private eye who's jaded and then gets more jaded as he goes along, but has actually really seen stuff, both of these main characters really haven't seen anything until the the movie begins. And so they are either literally or because of rest development, figuratively kids playing with adult things and then having their world sort of shaken by the discovery of, of the tragedies of the adult world. And I think that is something that is very relevant to millennials. Talking through all of this makes me even more excited to eventually uh, revisit Blue Velvet and, and how that, that hits just because of, you know, getting, getting at that, uh, obviously different, Obviously, Kyle MacLachlan is quite a bit older now, but you know, hitting at that same kind of uh, that same level of youth, experiencing the, the undoing of things. Um, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I like, I like exploring this younger side of the the detective quite a bit because uh, we've been, uh, I feel, you know, watching them get, you know, kind of hold in the same middle age, if not aging a little bit as we go. Yeah, I was just editing our. Um other Marlowe's part two episode. And as I point out there, it's like once that happens, every, every Marlowe has to be like 70. And, um, but, but conversely, you know, the other interesting thing I think is that Abe Applebaum is this is older. The character is older than, um, than Gold's Gold's, um, Marlowe in, Oh, that's but so true. He, but he so feels lot. younger, they, right? They do not he just do. feels arrested development. Well, and again, no right? one and no one would accuse uh Gould's Marlowe of like fully having his shit together, but he does no. feel like a full-fledged adult. Right. Um, and and so uh, uh, again, that just feels very generationally true. Yeah. Yeah. No, these are good to oh. this is good. This is good. This is a good conversation. Right. Agreed. A good pairing. Well done. So, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase? Tristan, what's in your box? 
Uh, I just revisited one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ernst Lubitsch, and, uh, and you know, he's got a handful of Stone Cold classics, but to me, Trouble in Paradise is his very best. Um, it is just this smart and really sexy uh, thief caper from the early 30s. Uh, banter is top-notch. The chemistry between the between the actors is um, is practically unmatched. It's just a, a a perfect trio, all kind of thrown in there, and and Lubitsch really knows um, how to how to set them off each other, and uh, and the, uh, the dialogue is perfect, um, and it all comes in at under an hour and a half. It's tight. It's early sound era. Um, so, so I always, I always, and pre-code, so I always appreciate seeing what they can get away with before the, the Hayes Code came in and disrupted things. Uh, hands down, one of my favorite movies of the 1930s. Y'all should check it out. Uh, I think it's on Criterion Channel. Lubitsch is such a, like, uh, just of course that you would do a lot. Not that this is news to me, but it's just so appropriate for your personality that, that. I'm, I'm a, obviously, shop around the corner. To be or not to be, Ninochka, I, I love him. I mean, he's um, great. Is, I, no, yeah, but just like his, his it's, pitch perfect it, it for you. It fits me, that, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, what for about me, you, I've, Yeah, I've been inspired by the Sight and Sound um, 2022 results to actually go back and watch a lot of even er, uh, just actually went through and pulled a, put together a list of every movie that's ever wound up on either their top 10 or... Damn. There are the for more expanded critics list, and so it's like 150 movies, and I've watched about 40 percent of them as of a few weeks ago, and I probably up to like 45 percent now, and I've just been using that as a way to really prioritize filling in the gaps. So, um, Bicycle Thieves turns out great movie. Can't can't blame somebody for putting it <laughs> the best film of all time. Uh, Rules of the Game also oh, love that movie so much. yeah, uh, it's like I mean, like Bicycle Thieves. Uh, it's great. It's powerful. It's an empathy machine. The directing in that is is fantastic, and the way it uses camera, incredible. The rules of the game is at first I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of funny, but it's a little slow. And then it, but it's all just set up for the second half at the party when then it just goes full force on the farce, and you're, but it's not doing it in that classic like French exits. It's like foreground background characters coming and going in frame in such a uniquely visual way and it's just escalating 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 and it's so funny and then it takes a turn and you're like oh this is a very different movie than what you thought it was and all of a sudden the context of the movie also becomes so important of when and where it was released and you're just like damn this is so moving what it, what it has become and what it's actually about and uh and it's great it's it's a magic trick as i said my my little box review uh, i think that's a good way to put it it's um that's got to be one of the best directed movies i i can think of just the sheer it the balance of tone yeah I, I it's it's absolutely staggering um how he can how he can totally shift like that but also uh anytime that there's a, as much madcap action as mm-hmm. as is being staged it, it it always impresses me how someone can pull that off and keep that momentum going yeah it's such a unique approach to, to that madcap action right in a way that's like not quite as high energy but is really interesting and, and visually stimulating um so i'm no, a big was, i'm a big renoir fan too yeah uh, oh yeah i mean it's great uh, uh yeah. yeah so you know sight and sound critic polls great movies turns good, out good stuff uh good, although good i've also place. been you did see I've, i i have also like I'm just not a Chaplin guy, so I've begrudgingly been been watching the ones that are on the list for Chaplin. I'm just like, this is not not my jam. Much Keaton. more, much more Keaton. Keaton's the way to go. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I like Chaplin. Chaplin's Chaplin's great, but I don't even honestly, I don't even like him. Like, he'll have one or two bits in his movie, each movie, where I'm like, that was pretty good. But his the fundamental his fundamental approach to the Tramp as like. The way he's kind of a little cloying, and he kind of plays to the audience a little bit, and he also plays like he's a low character, low low status character, kind of playing high status, but not in a way that really comes at the expense of the character. I don't know. It, it, I'm still thinking about it, 
but it's just something about the the fundamental thesis of the tramp i just don't find funny um i i i don't particularly like my heartstrings being so obviously tugged um not oh, he's just it's not like, my yeah and he, he, is, he he goes for it he goes for it. he is unabashed in his like you know let's get a kid and a puppy in there not that that's in city lights which yeah. i just watched but you know it's that kind of vibe of like what's just get the most blatant approach that we can find and we'll do that so so dear listener go watch sherlock jr <laughs> go watch sherlock jr that's a great great choice <laughs> uh all right thank you as always for joining us in this excavation of the darkest grittiest of genres you can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on letterboxd under the handle celluloid dirt We'll see you next time when we have our first writer-director doubleheader with an examination of the work of Shane Black and his two pulpy private detective films, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. Well, that's, that's, but we need that friction, Tristan. That's what sells tickets. You want me to, I'll bring some friction. Fine. I don't know. I'll find find some friction.